This episode contains adult themes as we dive into the Marxification of education in Alabama. Due to that, listener and viewer discretion is advised. Well, guys, this is by far the most important podcast we've done. Why? Um, This is in the same vein of so much that we've talked about with Marxism, the long march through the institutions, Karl Marx, Vladimir Lenin, um, Stalin, and on and on. We brought Curtis Bowers on to talk about this very subject. We dive so much deeper than we ever had to the roots of this, uh, and and it's it's scary. I'm just going to say it's it's scary. We have Dr. James Lindsay joining us uh, to talk about his story, how he came on the scene, how he kind of got popular and got into this line of work. Um, but then we talk about the Marxification of education. What's going on in our schools? How is it actually being played? What's going on? Is it just curriculum? It's way beyond that. What is social emotional learning? SEL? What is this? I'm telling you guys, it's it's going to be scary. And I, I predict you might want to take your public or kids out of public school by the time it's done. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome everyone to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, CEO of 1819 News and host of this here podcast where we are pursuing a free and flourishing Alabama every single week. We have a great episode today. Dr. James Lindsay is in studio. Uh, he's going to be coming on to talk about the Marxification of education. Um, he's going to tell his story. I first saw him on uh, Joe Rogan and talking about uh, some insane white papers that he was able to get published in the intellectual journals, just kind of proving what we all know that is a bunch of hogwash. Uh, and and he, he brought the evidence of that and uh, really, really cool, really funny story. Uh, but more serious is going to be the Marxification of education. Uh, and then we're going to be talking behind the scenes, throwing sand in the gears. How do we stop these people? It seems like they have their hand on every lever of power. Every single time we try and push back, they're right there and they're 10 steps ahead of us because they've been investing billions into this fight for generations. And we're just now waking up. We have the truth on our side. We have a superior product. We can win, but it's going to take effort. And so we're going to talk about how we can do that in our behind the scenes. But before we jump into the content, I want to ask you guys to join the fight. Alabama needs 1819 news. 1819 News needs you. Go to the website, 1819news.com. Click the button, become a member. Membership start as little as $5 a month. With that, you'll get some neat merch. Though if you give more than $5, the merch gets neater. Uh, And you also get access to behind-the-scenes content like we'll be doing with James today. Uh, But more than that, you get to support honest journalism, uh, independent journalism, us fighting this fight on your behalf, the people of Alabama exposing corruption, uh, informing you guys about what's going on in the state, why it matters, and also telling the things about the state that are good, true, and beautiful. So please support us there. And now, without further ado, as I say every single week, here we go. James, thank you so much for taking the time to come in and join us. Yeah, I'm excited. First trip to the to the area, so it's pretty good. Nice. Just to Alabama, period, or just Birmingham? No, I've been to Huntsville. Huntsville, okay. Yeah. I don't, I mean, Huntsville's nice and everything, but it's different, right? The farther south you go, it just, it, there, there really is different sections. And yeah, the culture that, is drastically different with a, a lot of federal contractors and stuff up that way. I mean, you know, I'm from Tennessee, so we got the east, yeah. the middle, the west. The further east or west you go, yeah. the more different, I guess. Exactly. Yeah, very, similar. very similar here. Well, glad to have you excited about the event we're going to do tonight. Um, very much needed conversations we need to be having uh, about what's going on in our education system. But before we kind of jump into the Marxification of education, uh, I want to familiarize my audience with you that maybe 
doesn't know you so that they can begin to follow you and hear the things that you have to say, insights on education. Um, but just hear your story. I think it's a really funny story about kind of how you did come on the scenes with uh, these just crazy white papers to get published in intellectual journals that were completely not real, uh, but that didn't stop them from publishing them. So um, talk about that, and then we'll we'll jump in a little more. Oh, my gosh. That's such a story. Um, it was the most fun I think I ever had professionally. I'll say yeah. that to start. I don't think I've ever laughed so hard in my entire life. I don't know how PG-13 we can get with this, but to be honest, to tell the story, we might have to get a little bit. Yeah, go for it. So um, it all kinds of start, kind of starts we're trying, me and my, my friend Peter Bogosian, we're trying to figure out what in the heck's going on in gender studies and feminism. We're running into everybody getting accused of uh, sexism. We're hearing all this crazy stuff about gender. None of it makes sense. This is maybe 2014, 15. And then come along 2016, this essay gets written, this journal article, I should say, academic white paper gets written for uh, a very big journal in geography out of uh, Portland, or out of, out of University of Oregon. And it's about the study of glaciers but that it needs to be done from a feminist angle and it needs to bring in indigenous myths about glaciers and feminist art projects. There's this one part where it says, you know, to understand how the glaciers retreat and how they advance on the mountains, how they shrink and grow, they take satellite photos and they measure the glaciers from satellite pictures. And they said, well, that using a satellite, that's pornographic. That's what it says in the paper. And it's they assume that they have an objective view, the God's eye view from nowhere, they call it. And it turns out there's a feminist who paints pictures that look like the glacier pictures from satellites, and they don't even include her paintings in the scientific study. And I thought, this has got to be a joke. I was so upset. With that. That's hardly even the, the surface of how crazy this paper was. And I was so upset because it was attacking science it's in a major geography journal, has a very high what they call impact factor. And then this journalist, um, Matt Ridley, writing in London for The Spectator, wrote an essay and he said, I still hold out that it's an academic hoax. So this brought all this scrutiny on the University of Oregon. They got the four authors. The university stood behind them. They said, no, it's real. Turns out we start digging. We find out it's the paper at the very end. They declare their financial interests. They have to. And it says they're operating on 500, or just short of five, 492 or something like that, $1,000 of National Science Foundation taxpayer money dedicated to the sciences. And we were like, whoa. So Ridley says, I hold out that it's a hoax. They end up giving one of the authors a TED Talk about the feminist glaciers. You can type it in and watch it yourself. It's 20 minutes. <laughs> feminist glacier TED Talk. It's insane, the stuff that you won't believe what's in it until you watch it. And so... Peter calls me and he's like, I've had enough of this. And I was like, I, yeah, this is, this is ridiculous. He said, I think they're ready for an academic hoax. And I said, okay, let's do it. They won't be able to tell true from false, real from fake. Let's throw a hoax their way and see what happens. So we're trying to figure out what we're going to write. And the first thought was, why don't we just write a paper that all potatoes are racist or something like that, which is just stupid. And yeah. it, didn't, it was dumb. And then we thought a little bit more and we are like, I, no, no, no. I, I, I think I came up with the idea. It's like, why don't we say that that we should think of penises as social constructs. Yes. They're not organs for reproduction and all that. No, no, yeah. no, no, no. They are social constructs, and they cause all the problems in the world. And Peter was like, especially climate change. And I was like, yes. <laughs> and so we wrote this paper called The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct, and we said that, that we should think not of it as an organ, but instead, and we said, well, you know, preoperative trans people have penises, but they're women, so it's not a male organ. And so... 
Obviously, we shouldn't think of it that way. It's just socially constructed as a site of male braggadocio and machismo yeah. and all these things. And we put all these lewd things and, you know, very bad puns about, you know, with climate change, it's the desire to rape virgin environments and all this puns and bad, it's just stupid yeah. jokes. It was like var- that scene in Varsity Blues for anybody who remembers it like halfway through the paper. And so we turn around. This ends up, we submit it to a gender studies journal. The gender studies journal says, no, we don't want it, but we're a Taylor and Francis journal and we'll forward it to another Taylor and Francis journal if you want internally, maybe they'll take it. And we said, yeah, why not? Whatever. And we figured we had no chance. Like, yeah. why? sure. Turns out they forwarded it to a predatory journal, which is what, what they call it when a journal will take money and publish anything as an academic study. We didn't know it was a predatory journal, so we said, yeah, they forwarded it. That's an academic scandal that that's happening inside academic publishing so that Taylor and Francis can make money. But turns out the predatory journal accepted it. They forgot to charge us and published it anyway, so we're like, we got a paper published. So we spiked the football. Gender studies is stupid. We ignored our actual scandal that we found. Gender studies is dumb. Ha, ha, ha. And there was these articles written, and they said, hey, yeah, maybe, but you didn't demonstrate it. We think you wrote some good satire, but you'd have to, you know, get more papers, better journals, and so on and so forth. All these different criteria to prove your point. So I called Peter, or maybe Peter called me, and he's like, let's do that. And then we said, okay, let's do that. So in the summer of 2017, we started in in an adventure, a project that's now called the Grievance Studies Affair. And we wrote um, 20 more of these papers. Usually one paper per year, two papers per year is a good academic pace. They're really hard to write. We wrote one every two weeks. (laughs) <laughs> for a little over a year. And we got 20 of them done and we submitted them to actual, you know, journals. We learned as we went. At first we weren't doing so well, then later we got the hang of it when all of them started to get accepted. And we ended up getting 7 accepted for publication. 7 more were still under review when the Wall Street Journal figured us out, called us out on it and we had to stop. And so we were very successful at penetrating their academic literature with stuff that was straight up made up. Wow. The goal was flatter their politics be as ridiculous as we can in the process and see what we can get in. So one of the papers, the most famous paper is about dog sex. I told you it's PG-13. <laughs> no, this is the one I was hoping you'd talk about. So and so good. it's Joe Rogan's favorite paper yeah. too. He talks, he still laughs about it on the air all, yeah. like all the time. So we said that, you know, dogs hump each other at dog parks. And by the way, that humans react to dog humping at dog parks and we can figure out dog canine rape culture, we called it. We can figure out something about human rape culture and then we can figure out a way to stop it, which would, the solution was that we're going to train men the way that we train dogs, like out of obedience manuals and with leashes. If it was politically feasible, we could use shot collars and <laughs> things like this. And we said that dog parks are rape condoning spaces, just like nightclubs. So nightclubs are obviously rape condoning spaces. We said they're Petri dishes of rape culture and all of this stuff. And so we wrote this absolutely absurd paper. It's impossible, just like the Glacier paper, to explain to you how stupid this paper was, how transparently ridiculous. We said we sat outside in one year in Portland, Oregon, for a thousand hours watching dog humping. And never once, though, in the in the heavy rain. And we said that we, to make sure that we knew if the dog humping was either gay or straight dog humping or dog rape, we inspected the genitals of all the dogs. 10,000 dogs, as a matter of fact, we (laughs) examined their genitals. And then the peer reviewers were worried about things like, did you protect the dog's privacy while you're inspecting their genitals? So we just wrote back and said, yeah, we didn't record the dog's names or 
patterns and colors. And so, you know, we <laughs> recorded the people's names, but not the dogs. And they're like, yeah. okie dokie. And so that's the kind of stuff they were worried about. And so this paper not only got accepted by the leading journal in feminist geography, it got an award for excellence and scholarship in the field of feminist geography and was published. It turned out to be our downfall. It's so ridiculous. Not a single academic caught on that this is stupid. Not a single, like, professional figured it out. A journalist in college was like, that has to be fake. <laughs> so some college student who wouldn't let it go chewed on it and chewed on it and chewed on it and finally got a journalist at the Wall Street Journal to look at it. And she was like, I don't know, that looks bogus. And so she got involved and then all of a sudden everything came apart. But there were, like I said, that was just one of them. There were 20. Some of them are very, uh, some of them are way beyond PG-13. One of them that's still just G-rated was we said that the sport of bodybuilding is intrinsically fat phobic. It already favors big bodies, but it judges fat bodies to be worse than muscular bodies. So the sport of bodybuilding has to introduce a new category called fat bodybuilding or else it's fat phobic, but it can't be a competition because we don't like competition on the left. So it's a fat exhibition, but not a mere exhibition, but a political exhibition of fat. And so what they would do is during a regular bodybuilding show, you know, the bikini or whatever, all the different categories, you have a bunch of fat people walk out on stage and do a political exhibition of fat based on a quote I read in an actual paper about fat studies that said, and this is a real quote, it takes a long time to build a fat body. It takes even longer to build a politicized fat body, which is the funniest thing I'd ever read in my life. What is politicized fat? Like, what like is, showing it off and like okay. Lizzo. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's like, frankly, yeah. when there's like fat is beautiful, that's politicized fat. And if you, if you don't agree, you're a bigot, that's politicized fat. So we said that there had to be a category for fat bodybuilding in the sport of bodybuilding. And that got accepted by the journal Fat Studies, um, published. It was some, some men's magazines like reached out to us and wanted to interview the authors about, uh, you know, this new idea for the sport of bodybuilding. We were like, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. But you can kind of see how academic BS makes it out into the world that way. And then there were others. We said that the reason that straight men tend to be transphobic is because they don't practice putting things up their butt. So if they practice putting things up their butt, they would be less transphobic. <laughs> that was called an important contribution to knowledge by yeah. one of the peer reviewers. But the big, big kind of, those are all funny, right? Another funny one before the big, big one. The, another funny one was that we wrote a paper saying that doing academic hoaxes is a form of bullying because we were doing academic yeah. hoaxes. Yeah. And we talked about the conceptual penis. We talked about ourselves. We yeah. named ourselves in the paper as terrible people. And we called the paper when the joke's on you. And we said that it's never okay to make fun of social justice. It's always okay to make fun of you know other people for social justice. Yeah. But especially you can't write academic hoaxes like those awful people, Peter Bogosian and James Lindsay, who were the ones writing the paper. Yeah. And so that was one. Well, scary. We rewrote a chapter of Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf, and we took out our movement, which was the Nazi party, and replaced it with uh, intersectional feminism. Then we made all the language work and tucked in some, you know, you know, uh, academic literature. Yeah. And that got accepted by a feminist social work journal called Aphelia. And then uh, this, the big one for me, though, we wrote a paper about education. And the paper in education, we said, well, there's privileged students and there's there's oppressed students. And so we take the privileged students. We make them all do the privilege walk or some exercise where they identify how much privilege they have. We rank the class by privilege, highest to lowest. And so, like, the white men are all going to have a lot of privilege. And if they have privilege, we're going to invite them to listen and learn in silence. 
We're not going to answer their questions, no raising their hand, no emails. But then we're also going to let them experience reparations, we said. So we're going to have them sit in the floor. We're going to humiliate them. We're going to talk over them. We're going to make fun of them. We're going to make them wear chains while they sit in the floor to experience what it was like to be slaves. And this would help them overcome their privilege. But to make it funny, we said, so we're going to abuse the students, but we're going to do it with compassion. (laughs) And the peer reviewers wrote us back and they said, we love this idea. It overcomes white fragility, but you can't use compassion. Compassion might put the privileged kids first again. It would recenter their needs over the needs of the oppressed. So you can't use compassion. Instead, you should use what they call the pedagogy of discomfort. Make them as uncomfortable as possible and leave them in their misery to learn what it's like to suffer. And I thought, oh my God, this ends in genocide. Anything that says that the way you you have certain people who are intrinsically privileged in society and you have to abuse them into discomfort so that they learn what it means to be uncomfortable, to overcome privilege, and there can be no compassion in the process, and it's identifiable with identity groups, whether it's straight, white, yeah. male, whatever. I was like, this ends nowhere good. And you, I want to just remind you and your listeners, when all those stupid riots broke out, those BLM and Antifa riots in 2020, what did politicians like AOC tell us on TV. Change is meant to be uncomfortable. People need to learn in discomfort. It's the exact same logic that we weren't tapping into something fringe and stupid. We were right down Main Street. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, this ends in genocide. So I asked my wife, people say, I have no courage. Listen to this. I went to my wife a couple weeks later. It took me a couple weeks to pluck up the courage. And I said, honey, I think this ends in the end of Western civilization and maybe the deaths of millions of people. This thing we're doing is a joke. If we don't stop it, can I quit my job and dedicate all my time to studying it and exposing it? And my wife kind of just blinked because she's a woman. Yeah. I'm old school. She's a woman, yeah. like actually a woman. Yeah. And like, and I, I, she doesn't even identify as one. She just is a woman. Yeah. And she kind of blinks at me for a minute and she says, can you make money doing that? It's the first thing she said back to me. And I said, I don't know. And she said, you have 18 months to figure it out. And because we're old school and she's a woman, 18 months meant 15 months. Yeah. And I finally, we, we got the plane off the, off the runway just in time. And I've been studying all of the, the woke literature and its philosophical and religious antecedents full time and exposing it all over the country ever since, all over the world, actually. I travel wow. all over the place. I take Since, um, I guess, the beginning of 2020, since COVID or whatever, I've probably had about 300 flights, maybe over 300 flights now, uh, a lot. I get all over the world, all over the country. This is, uh, I've spoken in 42 states. Um, so, you know, it's a lot of states to have spoken in. Spoken in London. I've spoken in Brussels, uh, in Belgium. Uh, I've been invited, I've spoken in Germany, actually, related to this as well. I've spoken in Australia. So I've been all over the place. What is, so, so obviously we've seen wokeness take root in our institutions. And I mean, it's like you said, it, you weren't tapping into fringe. You're, you're, you're on main street. Right? Oh yeah. Right down main street. What, what is it like in Europe? What is it like? And how, how, how much has this lunacy infected their institutions and way of life? All right. So for the, for the average American who has no idea how these things work, let me clarify that Britain and Europe are different things. The UK yeah. and Europe do not identify one another as part of the same thing. Yeah. So the the English-speaking countries, United Kingdom, Canada, and Australia, New Zealand, are completely woke. In fact, I think they're more woke than the United States. Europe, like, you know, actual Europe, is not very woke. They are very socialist, but they are not very woke. So they've kind of got the old-school economic socialism 
they don't have the, they know the difference between a man and a woman and nobody yeah. has to be consulted for help. They can tell, right? Yeah. The, the race stuff it confuses them. They don't know what, why critical race theory is happening. It's just confusing to them. Uh, and so I got invited to speak in Brussels at the parliament, the EU parliament. I spoke there in the end of March. My speech went viral. It turns out I got really lucky. I gave the best speech of my life in like the biggest room I've ever been in and in front of the, you know, at the EU parliament in front of a whole bunch of uh, MEPs and students from around Europe. And um, the, I got invited specifically because they said that the problem of woke is taking over America. We want to stop it from coming to Europe. How do we do it? And that was specifically what I was brought there for. Now they, again, just straight up admitted we're completely socialist, yeah. which is bad, but we're not crazy, yeah. right? We haven't lost our minds with woke. That's we a, have standards. And so they tried to accuse me. They said, this is a very American phenomenon. We want you to talk about that. I was like, listen, I, the first thing I said in my talk, I said, you guys want me to come in here and tell you it's a very American phenomenon, but this started in Germany and it started in France and it's just come back home. This, these are European, continental European theories that have gone through the American, you know, Institute of Virology and come yeah. back as like a super virus <laughs> yeah. to come ruin your countries. And I gave a speech about how it's ultimately Marxism that's taken on American characteristics, uh, just like how Mao Zedong said that he was doing Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics in order to take over China yeah. in the 50s yep. and 60s. I said that what woke is is the same thing. It's Marxism with American characteristics. In fact, it's Maoist Marxism with American characteristics, and my speech was wow. tailored to that. So that, I didn't know that when we were writing these when we were writing these funny papers. I just yeah. thought we were making fun of these guys with sex jokes and dirty jokes and body, you know, dog sex and you know, stupid things. Yeah, and it, no, I was correct. This ends potentially in you know lots of death because yeah. it's Marxism. That's what it does. We're going to shift gears and get into the the Marxification education. I'm going to kind of lay out a little groundwork on Alabama education and kind of center it on that. But I, I think one of the things that's interesting is it's like you discover the nonsense through the papers and, and other people have discovered it. Like when they're like, they want to put boys and girls bathrooms. Like, what mm -hmm. is this? And then it's like you say, you track the roots and you track the roots and it does go through Europe and the Eastern Bloc of Europe. And you go back to Marx, Marx's writing, Lenin picking up those writings and putting teeth to it, militarization mm -hmm. of it, Stalin taking it after that, and then the Chinese and everything. And, um, you know, we were very resistant to it in our institutions, like the FBI, like if you read Hoover, or, uh, is that his name? Yeah, J. Hoover. Hoover. Yeah, and, and he wrote a whole book on, like, we've got to keep the commies out. Oh, yeah. And now our FBI is commies. Like, yeah. it, it's just, it's like they've taken over everything. And it really is. We're worried about COVID virus, and you just you just made the parallel. This is a real virus that's actually going to kill lots of people. Yeah, yeah. It's not a biological bi virus. It's yeah, a it's, it's an ideological virus. or mental virus. That's right, and it will. And it's it has been taking over. It is taking over. It's in, in incredibly effective. A lot of people don't understand that in the West. This is how I actually characterized it. By the way, in in Europe, I said that the 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 marxism if you think of it like an, an evolving species like as a genus there's lots of different kinds like if the cats are a genus right there's lots of cats there's lions there's tigers there's house cats there's bobcats they're all different there's lynxes you know you can go right down the list and they have different characteristics you can tell them apart well if you think of marxism as this whole ideological way of thinking about the world in fact as a theology is what i said as a type of upside down evil religion well, you have economic Marxism. That's a species. That's like lions, maybe. You have CRT. That's race Marxism. That's like tigers. You got this sexuality-based stuff, queer theory. That's a Marxism that's based on, you know, it's, it's adapted in different ways to different environments and different circumstances. And like you said, 
if you think about it, like uh, antibiotic resistant bacteria, right? Like the MRSA or whatever yeah. people get on their skin, um, or some of these other diseases that become antibiotic resistant. The West was extremely good at stopping Marxism for a very, very long time. And what happened was in the in the twenties and thirties, they started to figure out that we needed what was called Western Marxism, or sometimes it could called cultural Marxism. Mm -hmm. They started saying what we have to do is go into the cultural institutions and take them over from the inside. And this developed, and then these guys, a lot of them were Germans, and they were Jewish, and they came over during World War II when Hitler became chancellor because yeah, Frankfurt School Frankfurt School was not going to do well under Hitler. In <laughs> fact, Hitler, if you read Mein Kampf, which I've bothered to do, is really angry about the Marxists. And the reason he actually hated the Jews is because he thought all Jews are Marxists. Yeah. That's actually, he says it in the beginning, like the third chapter of Mein Kampf. And that's Bolshevik Revolution, like that's all that. And yeah. And he said he would argue with the Marxists, he'd lose his temper with the Marxists, and then he said, I adapted their own methods to my conclusions, and then I started to make progress. He says that. And then he says, and then I realized who the real problem is, and it's the Jews. And he identified Marxists and Jews as the same characters, and then it was a massive persecution. So the Frankfurt School is not going to do okay in yeah. Frankfurt anymore. So it got brought over during that time to first Columbia University yeah. in New York City, and then it started to kind of spread. A lot of them ended up in California universities, the New England universities, New York City universities. The One of the guys, Herbert Marcuse, ends up getting, during World War II, pulled in and forms the kind of initial group of the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which later became the CIA. And so now you're like, oh, I wonder how they got in <laughs> from the beginning. And so he was trying to help them understand German ideology so that they could combat the Nazis, though, and so or allegedly. And so what happened was Marcuse in the 50s and 60s and, and his, his associates like Max Horkheimer were saying American capitalism stabilizes the working class. It's not – we can't do an economic revolution here. They will not revolt. They're counter-revolutionary. What are we going to do? And then Marcuse says we use the identity politics. We go yeah. into the – he said into the ghettos literally. We go into the ghettos. The ghetto population has the energy. The ghettos are located near financial districts and cities where they can do massive damage. And then he says we're going to use the sexual politics. We're going to use feminists, sexual minorities. We're going to use the outsiders and the radicals. And we're going to get them all into a movement that's led by theory that's being disseminated through the academic youth, the college yeah. students. And this is exactly what happened. And then later – he has, you know, everything gets wild in 68, 69, people die, there's riots, and then all of a sudden that kind of gets put down, it all stops. And in 72, he writes a book called Counter-Revolution and Revolt, and he says, nope, it was, Gramsci was right in the first place. We have to go into the institutions. We have to become the thing. We're going to learn to do computer programming. We're going to go be computer programmers, and our computer programming office is going to get turned into our ideology by our presence. And he said, and most importantly, we're going into education on all levels. Yep. And we're going to infiltrate and become the thing. So they're going to infiltrate the FBI and become the FBI. They're going to infiltrate you know, Google and become the, the Google CEOs. They're going to infiltrate the colleges of education and become the teachers of the teachers. And this is exactly the plan they laid out in starting in the 60s and 70s and executed over the last 50 years. And they've captured institution after institution after institution to now where it seems like it's every institution. Um, but they had no problem abandoning the working class because – the working class is stabilized. It's not revolutionary. So they saw corporations as a huge source of power. So they've colonized corporations. Now you have corporations doing Marxism, which mystifies everybody, but that's what's going on. And that's ultimately how they've crept into everything, everywhere in our society. And we're finally now, and I have to say happily, 
you know, in the last three or four years waking up yeah. that, that this has happened and now we have to deal with it. Yeah. No, and that whole study of the long march of the institutions, uh, Marcuse and Gramsci and all that, that's what set me down the path of what we're doing now. Right. Yeah. And so, um, Wow. Well, let's, let's dive into education. So here in Alabama, you know, we have this thing where we believe we're in the Bible belt. So we believe that we're insulated. And so there's this like this, they, they feel like there's a safety net here. That wouldn't happen here. Those teachers are good Christians and yada, yada, yada. Well, you know, one of the things we've done here at, at 1819 news is expose this stuff that's happening in our schools. Uh, and then that's allowed the parents to respond and things like that. And so we've definitely shaken things up. We had a, a drag queen, uh, a teacher uh, in in Huntsville that was moonlighting as a drag queen, hmm. reading uh, sexual or reading books with sexual quips to children. Yeah, uh, wrote an article on it, blew it up. Um, he got a two week paid vacation, uh, also known as a suspension. Um, and we said, hey, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you fire this person? Oh, we believe he has boundaries, and you know, would be able to keep this out of the classroom and his personal life. I'm like, that's weird. If I was throwing up hail Hitler's with a swastika on my arm going down the street, you would fire me as you should yeah. because like you can't delineate those two like that. That is, and you don't want that. And and so they said, no, 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 no. So, well, uh, our, our reporter continued to dig and found a, um, a podcast with this fellow on there called look who's tucking. Can't make it up. Oh. And on that podcast, he went in and, and said that he was strategically and covertly placing materials in his classroom to groom children. Yeah, of course he lost his job then, but yeah. Good. Um, you know, I can go on and on about all these different things and, and it's not, you know, that's probably the nth degree. That's the extreme. Um, some of the more common things that we're seeing in education is just graded curriculum that has critical race theory and gender mm-hmm. pronouns and stuff built into it. And, um, it's, it's, it's people, it's blowing people's minds because they thought they were insulated and then they're seeing it. And then it's now what, and so we'll get into the now what in the behind the scenes, but talk about the marxification uh, of education. Yeah. So I, I run into this, I, I, as you might guess, spend a lot of time in red states going around yeah. the country, very, very conservative states. And everybody, I hear this story in every state and I, I have the unfortunate job of bringing the bad news to the people. Yeah. Yes, it's here. I was just, actually, we drove over from Atlanta today. And so I was meeting with some of the Atlanta state legislature this morning for, for breakfast, uh, breakfast, brunch, whatever. So we're having brunch there. We're talking. And this lady is like one of the state reps. She's not just some lady. Is like, I represent one of the most conservative counties in Georgia, and it's all over our schools, and people can't believe it. And everybody starts talking. Oh, we can't believe it. Oh, wow, it's 75% to, you know, whatever, blah, 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 red. And it's, it's everywhere. I, we get in the car after after this driving across, you know, a few hours drive over somebody completely unconnected, has no idea I'm even coming to Alabama or Birmingham specifically, sends me an example of Birmingham schools teaching the sexual stuff. And one of the parents is trying to blow the whistle on it. And it's some graded thing where it's talking about, did you know that some boys can be girls and some girls can be boys? And we just have to not judge people for who they really are mm. and the whole thing. So is it here? It is here. It is here. Yes, of course it is here. It is everywhere because the places where it's ultimately coming from are literally global organizations like the United Nations, which are then putting it out through their subsidiary, UNESCO, which is the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization. That's coming in through the federal government, Department of Education. If your school takes federal money, it's there, Mm -hmm. which is it's in your school because they all take federal money. If your private school takes federal money, it's probably there. Yeah. Because it's in all of them, because it's part of what's mandated. You take one red cent of federal money, you've got to meet their curriculum demands. You've got to have the social emotional learning. You've got to have the whole thing. 
And this, you know, you give those examples, but it can be much more. These are actually very obvious, easy to see examples. It can be very insidious. So this is a real example. I give this ex example all the time. It blows people's minds. It's so important to understand how insidious it can be. And it'll tie into Marxification of education. This is a real example from teacher training. So this is how they train the teachers. So if I gave you, let's say that I'm your kid and I come in with my homework, my math homework, and I show you this problem, this math problem. Second grade, don't sweat. I know math's hard, but it's second grade. Everybody's got this. And I show you this. See if you could possibly see something wrong with it. Now, if you if you know the cheat code, because you've listened to my podcast, don't give it away. Yeah. So you probably have heard this. So Johnny is riding in the car with his mom and dad on the way to an amusement park. The amusement park is 50 miles away, and they've driven 30 miles so far. How much further do they have to go? Now, I used to be a math educator. So the job of the teacher is, to, there's, your, there's your word problem. It's got this cute little story. The kids are paying attention. You got the math problem. My job is to take this real world scene, get them to understand there's a subtraction problem of 50 minus 30 there, get them to write that down and say equals 20, and then to give the answer back, not just as 20, but as a sentence, because it was given as sentences, they have 20 miles left to go, right? That's how you teach a word problem. That's what the purpose of teaching word problems. Did you find anything objectionable in that word problem? No, of course you didn't. So the teachers are literally and explicitly taught in social-emotional learning, professional development courses. This is how subtle it can be. Hey, kids, problems about amusement parks. Raise your hand if you've ever been to an amusement park. We're going to get you engaged in the material. So there's seven. Some kids have been. Some kids have not. So now you have a difference, a division in the class. And depending on what happens, you have lots of options. Let's say... That some kids raise their hands and some kids don't, and there's nothing in particular that's you know outstanding about that. So you say, okay, why, kids? Do you think some kids get to go to amusement parks and some of you some of you don't? And you are trained as teachers to keep asking, well, what else? What else? You know, some kids say the darndest things. I'm sure you're going to get some funny answers, and you're told to keep asking more kids for their thoughts until one of them says, not everybody can afford it. Oh, that's right, not everybody can afford it. How could we make it so everybody could afford to go to the amusement park? And now you're talking about rich people can pay for it. The government can pay for it. It should be free. And you're having a conversation about socialism, a political conversation with the children. Maybe what you do is you push it and one of the kids raises his hand and he says, my parents won't let me go until I'm older. Oh, is that fair that some kids get to go because their parents think it's okay and other kids don't get to go because their parents think they're not ready? Should parents be making that decision or do you think maybe somebody else should? Could the school make that decision for the parents? And now you're talking about parental authority and setting the school versus the parents in terms of how you raise your kids. So it's another political conversation. Again, we're talking about seven-year-old kids. Maybe it turns out that when you ask the original question about amusement parks, there is a difference that's conspicuous. Maybe... More of the white kids raise their hand and fewer of the black kids raise their hand. Why is it that, guys, do you think that so many of the white kids have been to an amusement park and so many of the black kids haven't had the chance? And now your CRT conversation's on the table. Critical race theory is set up to be analyzed and dragged up into a conversation out of this math problem. Maybe instead you say, you know, Johnny's riding with his in the car with his mom and dad. Do all families have a mom and dad? What do you think, guys? Oh, we only have a mom. Feminist conversation. Or, well, I know somebody who has two moms sexuality conversation. Or, guys, do you think it's really a good idea? What do we think? We were just talking about environmentalism and science. Do you think it's a good idea to ride in a car just to go have fun? And now you're having the climate change conversation. You can have a million political conversations out of anything, and they are trained in teacher trainings for professional development and social-emotional learning to make political conversations out of everyday, normal, anything 
questions. And if I showed you that as my homework, you wouldn't blink an eye. If you did a Freedom of Information Act request and got the curriculum, if they even gave it to you, you'd see that and you wouldn't think twice. Totally, That's how insidious it is. And this comes straight out of a field of educational thought that has completely captured all of education that's called critical pedagogy. Critical pedagogy comes from a Brazilian Marxist named Paulo Freire. Paulo, that's F-R-E-I-R-E, -E, if anybody wants to look him up. Paulo Freire. And so Freire said that the point of academic materials, literacy lessons, reading lessons, or whatever, is to use the lesson as a mediator to political knowledge. True learning is political learning. So in other words, hey kids, here's a question about amusement parks. That's what Freddie would call a generative theme because it generates a conversation about politics. And then it's the teacher's job to facilitate the political conversation out of the example. So the goal is to not use the academic material to do academics, but instead to have a political conversation, which is, of course, on Marxist terms or through a diversity, equity, inclusion lens, a CRT lens, a sexuality, comprehensive sexuality studies or uh, comprehensive sexuality education lens. These are the ways that they're actually bringing it in, and it can be really overt, like those, you know, graded materials, or it can be, or the gender unicorn, or whatever, or it can be super subtle like this. And what you have is a problem with you have a bunch of activists in the classroom who think they are perfectly entitled with an ethical mission higher than any other, higher than the law in some of their own words, to do these political conversations with the kids to awaken a political consciousness by which they mean a Marxist consciousness of the society that they live in related to the real experiences of their lives. And it all comes from Paulo Freire. This is what I refer to as the Marxification of education. Wow. Yeah, no kidding. Well, I have seven children, and they don't go to public schools. So. Well, that's, this is the way. <laughs> this is the As way. somebody who went to public schools, defended public schools, was proud of public schools, who even up to a few years ago thought homeschooling was probably for crackpots, I tell people all around this country, your first and best option is to jerk your kids out of those schools and homeschool them if you care about them. Mm. Overwhelmingly. If you want to do the legwork and find a private school that's not crazy, maybe there's one in your area and you're going to have to do your homework and you're going to have to stay on it. It's you can do that so too. so pernicious. And like, I mean, I go as far as saying they won't stop until they have your children. They won't stop until they've sodomized your children. They won't stop. Like they are coming for our children. I used to say that a couple of years ago and people thought I was a psychopath. Now they're like, they're coming for our children. I'm like, yes, they're coming for our children. And, um, it, and it's not just, yes. So hearty, amen. Get them out of the public schools saying that for sure. But it's, it's the devices. Okay. And, 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 and the level, level of AI that's playing into this and everything. So that's if, right. if my kids are on, my kids don't have devices, but if they're using my wife's phone and they're on her YouTube account, um, and she's in the room, commercials come up that are, you know, um, I don't know, cleaning spray or something. Yeah. We leave and it's God only knows what, and the kids will bring us be like, mom, this commercial. And it's a commercial that's never come up on her phone before or whatever. It's almost like they know that she's not in the room. I, I'm telling oh, you, wow. it goes Wild. insane. Okay. And, and so we do start to look like crackpots to some people because we're so vigilant. And I think we have to be radically vigilant without turning into crackpots. I think that's important. Um, in order to defend while we fend this off and, and throw sand in the gears until we're on the other side of this, it's, 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 it's the only way. Tell me um, social emotional learning. Talk about that SEL. What is that? Yeah. So social emotional learning, it's, I mean, we could do three, four hours on this. It's so big. It's so yeah. important. Is it in your school? Yes, it is. 
I almost can guarantee it. It's allegedly, according to the organization that's in charge, the chief lobbying organization for it is called CASEL. That's C-A-S-E-L, the Collaborative for Academic, Social, and Emotional Learning. Um, it was developed in 1994 and 5 at a place called the Fetzer Institute, which was literally a new age spirituality cult in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And its goal at the Fetzer Institute is to combine science and spirituality ultimately to teach something that it's kind of uh, intellectual progenitors referred to as the science of right human relations. And it's to be infused in all the subjects and so on. So social emotional learning is developed as a means to make education about the social and emotional aspects of the child's development. The claim is, well, it happens in schools all the time in an organic, disorganized way. Why don't we seize the means of production and make sure that it happens in a directed way under our control. But Castle brags that 99% of the school districts in the United States of America have Castle compliance. 99%. And that may be changing as a statistic because Iowa has banned them from their State Department of Education as of a couple months ago. So Iowa is the only state that's taken a strike back at Castle so far. But the Collaborative for Academic Social Emotional Learning says that the most important part, if you want to have successful academic learning, you have to make sure the social and emotional, the mental health aspects are right. Oh, and we have a mental health crisis, by the way, so we need lots more of it. And so what do they do? They say that the five key competency areas that you have to deal with in education are things like self-awareness. And you think, well, okay, I do want my kid to be self-aware. As somebody who, you know, wrestled around with my kids and I took an elbow in the eyeball for the flailing arm, and then my daughter's response was, how am I supposed to know how to manage all the parts of my body at one time? Yeah, yeah. okay, self-awareness is good. You know, try yeah. to know where you are in space. Maybe don't run into the wall, you know. Yeah. Don't walk into traffic. That's not what they mean. Who, yeah. who are you? Who are you really inside? Self-awareness. What's, your, what's, yeah. your, what's your real identity? And how... Can that be understood through an equity lens or a diversity lens or a, a political lens, a Marxist lens? So self-awareness, self-management. Well, you've got to make sure that you behave accordingly, according to whatever policies that they are saying are what's correct good behavior. You wouldn't want to have white fragility, which means maybe part of self-management is taking your indoctrination without belly aching about it. Because if you complain, well, that's white fragility, right? And then uh, relationship skills. That's one. Um, responsible decision-making. You can see how those can be skewed into a, into a woke lens, but especially responsible decision-making. You know, you finished your drink. What are you going to do with it? You're going to throw it away or you're going to recycle it? You have to make a responsible decision. How are you going to treat, you know, you go out and you're dealing with a group of people. Are you going to make sure that the people in minority groups get a leg up? That's responsible decision-making. And then relationship skills, you're going to learn how to interact according to, oh, but you've always got to be aware of the oppression that's lying underneath the surface. And then the last one is actually social awareness. Uh, and so those are the five core areas uh, that they focus on. Social awareness is obviously just going to be woke stuff, like all throughout, because that's the theory guiding what it means to be socially aware. The UNESCO, so the United Nations, said that the purpose of social emotional learning is that when you train children and I'm not exaggerating this at all. This is in their own publication, which is called The Blue Dot. I think, I'm not, I'm, we'd have to double check, but I think the issue of The Blue Dot, which is their magazine, that had this particular article in it, shows a picture of a child with a slot on the side of his head and an SD card being plugged into it that has like diversity and like, you know, social awareness and all this plugging into the side of the head like they're literally programming the child with a computer chip. And the article was called SEL, so Social Emotional Learning, for SDGs. Sustainable Development Goals of the United Nations Agenda 2030. 
And they said, well, the point of education is going to be transitioning toward teaching the sustainable development goals throughout all of education. The National Education Association has already taken this up and written model curriculum for all K through 12 grades. Kindergarten, what is hunger? And you start with hunger. And you teach kids about the disparities in starving people and all of these weird things. And it goes all the way through like environmental act activism, climate change activism, and so on. Becoming an activist is an entire grade dedicated to becoming an activist. And so you're going to teach them about achieving the sustainable development goals. And what the article says is that will cause cognitive dissonance. It will cause anxiety, stress, depression, the weight of the world's on their shoulders. The kids are going to be stressed out. They're not going to understand why their education is about all these political things. It's going to be dissonant for them. And social-emotional learning will equip them with the mental and emotional skills to overcome and deal with the fact that their brainwashing isn't setting in right. So it's a tool designed to practice psychology in a classroom without a license, in an uncontrolled environment, in an open-ended way, in a group setting, without knowing anything particularly about the individuals in the room, their specific triggers or issues or what's going on at home specifically. So you're going to practice psychology as a teacher without a psycho uh, you know, medical license on a group of kids in an uncontrolled environment in a classroom so that you can overcome the fact that they are not being able to square it up mentally, that they're being brainwashed into becoming activists for globalist agendas. That's what social-emotional learning is. And I remind you that it actually came from an organization that was dedicated to new age one world, one spirit, spirituality that was going to fuse science and spirituality to achieve a science of right human relations and make education all about that. Unbelievable. It gets worse if you really want to go worse yeah. because Fetzer, the book that's talking about the science of right human relations, which John Fetzer considered to be one of his key books, it's called Education in the New Age by a woman named Alice A. Bailey. It was written in the 30s approximately. Publication date is a little ambiguous. It was published formally after her death by her own publishing company. So Alice A. Bailey was openly an occultist. She says that the point of education is to figure out who are the workers, who are the mystics, and who are the occultists, and get them on the right tracks, and to elevate the fifth root race, which is exactly what Hitler did with the Aryan race. It's the exact same mentality, exact same model, as a matter of fact. Talks about the idea of the necessity of planned parenthood, because Margaret Sanger was in the same group as Alice Bailey under a teacher named Helena Blavatsky. And the, the, the publishing company she published it from is called the Lucius Trust, L-U-C-I-S, Lucius Trust. The Lucius Trust is headquartered at 866 United Nations Plaza, and it is the chief print publisher for the United Nations. That's weird. But even weirder is when she incorporated the publishing company in 1922, she originally named it the Lucifer Publishing Company. She changed it to the Lucius publishing company in 24, thinking maybe the Lucifer part was a little on the nose for the American yeah. public. Then it got reincorporated as a trust. If you read the beginning of, of her book, she tells you why, because it was given a gigantic charitable donation by the Rockefeller Foundation, David Rockefeller specifically. And so that is where the ideas that became social-emotional learning half a century, a little over half a century later, actually came from. So the Lucifer Publishing Company publishes a book on education, gets picked up by a new age wacko. He creates a foundation with $200 million of his own money dedicated to new age spirituality and the occult. That's where they have the meeting that generates social emotional learning and the castle organization in the first place in the 1990s. And then that becomes infused into virtually everything in education. Uh, specifically, it happened after 2015 with the passage of one of Obama's last laws, which was ESSA, uh, which is the Every Student Succeeds Act, 
which mandates reporting not only on academic competency in line with Common Core, but also non-academic competencies like social and emotional development. And so you have to report on those. And so Castle rolled out, hey, we have a program called Social Emotional Learning. It satisfies, it checks the box, sign up for it, knowing that schools are bureaucratic and once you bring it in, you'll never get rid of it. And then it's just developed into a very radical program that's explicitly Marxist, transformative SEL. What is the, one of its creators, Linda Darling-Hammond, what does she have to say about it in a forward to the book called The Handbook of Social Emotional Learning? That it's based off of Paulo Freire's transformational method. Yeah. Wow. Well, we're going to wrap up. Where can people find you? I have a website. It is newdiscourses.com. That's the name of the company, New Discourses. It's also the name of the podcast, the New Discourses podcast, which you can find anywhere you listen to podcasts. That is... My kind of business profile is at New Discourses on all the social medias. Personally, I am at Conceptual James on all the social medias except Facebook, which banned me for making a joke about the Canadian suicide program. Uh, so I'm banned for life from Facebook for I that. I kicked off YouTube. Yeah, well, good for you. <laughs> it didn't take long. All right, well, that's going to wrap it up. And and we want to talk about the, the question that should be on every single person's mind who's watching this is what can we do? We're going to talk about what can we do behind the scenes. So you guys need to go sign up, become a member, member 1819news.com. Click the button, become a member today so that you can find out what we can do uh, about this. Scary stuff. James, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks. All right. As always, guys, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry.